From Washington, this is CQ on Congress, the nonpartisan source for in-depth analysis of Capitol Hill's policy debates. I am Sean Zeller. John Donnelly's cover story for CQ Magazine this week shines a light on the Navy's practice of accepting from its contractors ships with serious defects, a practice that has cost taxpayers many millions in cost overruns and potentially put sailors at risk, all while enriching the two companies that build American warships. Meanwhile, the Navy is asking Congress for $24 billion this year to build more vessels. If history is any guide, the representatives and senators who lead the Armed Services and Appropriations Committees will attach few strings to ensure quality control. John, who this year was awarded journalism's highest honor for coverage of Congress, the Everett McKinley Dirksen Prize for his work on military accidents, is here to tell us about the Navy's profligacy. Welcome, John. Hello. So, John, how big is this problem? It is pervasive. What the Government Accountability Office has found is that virtually every ship that they studied was not only handed over to the Navy with serious defects, but in fact entered service in the fleet with serious defects. So it's, an, it's a pervasive problem. There, they, there's only one example that anyone can remember in the last couple of decades of the Navy rejecting a ship because of quality concerns, whereas they repeatedly get ships that have major defects. Almost every ship, but in your story, you cite a couple particularly egregious examples, the Zumwalt destroyer and the Ford-class aircraft carrier. Can you give us uh, some insight into what happened with those two ships? Well, in both of those cases, the root of the problem, as it is in many of the Navy's problems, in fact, many of defense procurements more broadly, is trying to do too much, trying is sort of technical overreach. Uh, instead of having an incremental advance on the last uh, ship, trying to have a revolutionary one. And they bite off more than they can, sh- they can chew. And they also, uh, s- before they're even done uh, d- testing or even designing, fully designing these ships, they start building them. So uh, then they later find problems that might have been caught uh, sooner. And so that's a recipe for uh, cost overruns. The Zumwalt destroyers uh, and the Ford carriers are the two really bad examples where uh, the ships were actually delivered to the Navy before they were even done building them. And um, they, they are going to be years bef- in each of those cases before uh, the Navy is able to have a functioning vessel. But there's kind of times of problems we're talking about here. I mean, they range from everything from the paint peeling off the sides of the ships to the weapon systems not working to the elevators not working. I, give us some examples of yeah. what we're talking well, the, about. Well, those here. are great examples. I mean, uh, San Antonio-class uh, amphibious ships. Uh, the contractor messed up the painting of the outside of the vessel and they had to do it over. So they got paid to paint it and do it wrong. And then they got paid again to, to, to repaint it. So there's really no, and, and, that, and the 96% of the money spent on fixing problems caused by the shipbuilders, 96% of that is picked up by the taxpayer, according to the Government Accountability Office. So 
there's really not much incentive for the shipyards to do anything, you know, to, to, to deliver a quality product on time. Who are these contractors, and, and why aren't they being asked to, to pick up the costs? Well, there's two main companies that build the ships, uh, General Dynamics and Huntington Ingalls Industries. And then there are a few smaller shipyards, and there are also scores of other contractors that are involved in building a ship, including some major ones like Raytheon that build, uh, you know, subsystems like some of the computers that are the sort of the brains of the ship or, or missile defense systems and that sort of thing. Um, so there, so there, are, there are lots of contractors involved. And it's kind of in everybody's incentive to get ships built and whether they're ready or not, get them out of the shipyard and get the next one built. And um, put out a press release saying that the ship has been delivered to the Navy, yay. But in reality, the ship that gets delivered to the Navy is far from a functioning asset. I mean, you were mentioning before that it's not only that this is costing taxpayers money and potentially putting sailors at risk of injury or their life at risk, but it also uh, means we're not fully equipped to go to war. Yeah, I mean, you know, these are, these are you know, for example, uh, there was a ship called the Littoral Combat Ship. That's a class of ships. One of them called the USS Coronado. It has a missile defense system, basically missiles that are fired at incoming aircraft or, cru- or cruise missiles. And for a while there, the system was, uh, was geared to fire in the area in the wrong direction, basically. And so until that was fixed, they didn't have a functioning missile defense system. That's just one example, which is repeated over and over on, on many ships. So yeah, there's an, there's an impact on, on, on the operational ability of the Navy to do the nation's business. There's, there's costs that are being picked up. And, you know, sometimes it costs less to do it somewhere other than the, uh, the shipyard. But you know what costs even less? Delivering a ship that you don't have to fix uh, uh, you know, with additional work. So it's about quality. Uh, you know, as far as safety is concerned, we haven't seen any examples where a, f- a flawed equipment has actually hurt or injured somebody. But there's an indirect uh, effect on safety in that when ships on day one need further repair and maintenance and upgrades, it adds to a backlog of maintenance in the Navy. They have ships that are tied up in piers waiting to, you know, get fixed. Because they have so many ships waiting to get fixed, they don't have enough ships on station. When they don't have enough ships on station, the crews have to on the on the ships they do have have to work harder to perform more and more missions in places like the Pacific. And that kind of stress was attributed as a as a cause of the ship collisions in 2017 in the Pacific that killed 17 sailors. So it's quite an indirect line between the defects that are regularly accepted and those deaths, but it, you know, it's part of this, the, the big picture. You're listening to CQ on Congress. You can find this podcast at rollcall.com or subscribe at your favorite podcast app. I'm here with CQ senior writer John Donnelly talking about his CQ magazine cover story on the Navy's practice of accepting defective ships from its contractors. Now, John, you reached out to the Navy and to the contractors, and both declined to comment, right? The, the main shipbuilders uh, declined to comment. The Navy is still uh, hemming and hawing about whether it's going to give us something before we uh, actually put the story to press, right. which, which is— Which goes to bed tonight. Yes. John, um, your story explains that the Navy and the shipbuilders have incentives to accept 
this kind of uh, practice of, of these defective ships, not fully finished ships, being turned over to the Navy. It, one is to, just to keep the money flowing from Congress, right? I mean, how does this incentive system work? Well, it's a, as I was alluding to before, it's just to get, get the contracts done, get the programs moving, keep the bad news, i.e. the truth, to a minimum. Um, you know, get the ships out of the yards and into the Navy, keep, keep things humming. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the, the sort of overall incentive. Uh, but then you also have more um, detailed incentives, like in contracts, where the contracts are written in a way that uh, the shipbuilder gets paid uh, to fix things they shouldn't have broken to begin with. Or, for example, they, for, especially for lead ships in a class, they have contracts written where the shipyard basically just has to uh, do its best um, uh, to uh, develop and build a ship. Because you expect some problems with the first ship right, of its type. Right. But, you know, when you only, when you only uh, contract somebody to do their best and not to actually deliver a workable asset, even if it is the first, uh, uh, you know, in a class, then you're not exactly asking, uh, making making them very uh, difficult demand. So uh, to me, the, the, the key point here is that if, if the Navy almost never rejects a ship for quality uh, issues, and if almost every ship in the Navy enters service with the fleet with major defects, there is a wink and a nod thing going on here. In other words, the Navy's policy says, shipbuilders, you have to deliver quality products on time, you know, free of major defects. That's the policy. But the reality is entirely different. And so what, you know, it's watch what I do, not what I say. And so to me, the shipbuilders are taking the message that, well, you know, we don't really have to uh, do this right. Uh, we just have to do it and, uh, and keep things moving. What about Congress here? Are they doing anything to ensure quality control? I know you reached out to uh, Senator David Perdue, the Georgia Republican who leads the Senate committee that, that oversees this, and his uh, response was pretty nondescript. I yeah, I thought for sure he would at least give a nod to the importance of quality, but he didn't. All he did was essentially say, we have a lot of enemies and we need a lot of ships, um, and we need to get them into the fleet fast. Um, so that was not exactly inspiring. Um, and the Congress has done a lot of things. For example, um, they have said after the Zumwalt and Ford aircraft carrier disasters, they said, you can no longer say that a ship has been delivered to the Navy if you haven't finished building it. Okay. So they've outlawed that, but they haven't outlawed delivering uh, shoddy ships. <laughs> That's still happening. Um, and, and Congress, to its credit, is the one who ordered these government accountability office audits. So they're curious you're, about On which this. your story is largely based, right? Yes, sir. At the same time, you write that there can be good reasons for the Navy to accept a defective ship. Now, that's kind of counterintuitive, but what are those? Well, I mean, they, they say that it's cheaper, rather that the shipyards like uh, Bath Iron Works in Maine, which is owned by General Dynamics, to name just one, uh, their, their rates are high compared to how maybe they could get another shipyard to do it for less or the Navy itself might have the capability to fix some things. So they say it's cheaper in many instances to, to uh, do it outside the main shipyards or after the ship has come from the shipyards 
and 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 plus you get the ship into the hands of the sailors and even if uh, uh, this system or that system isn't working well lots of other ones are working and the sailors can at least train on them so there's something to be said about about this and I don't want to be an absolutist because I know there's you know there's a balance here that you have to strike between you know getting things built fast and keeping things moving and making sure that they work but it seems to me when in almost no case do they work, the balance is way off. You make another point that because there are only two companies building ships for the United States, it's likely that the taxpayer is going to be stuck with the bill in one way or another. You know, even if one of the companies were to pick up the cost overruns on one ship, they'd tack them onto the bill for the next ship that they're building. So um, it's, it's a market force problem in addition to a quality control problem. Yes, and that is a reality, and there's, there's, there's a great deal of truth in, in that. But that shouldn't be, uh, people shouldn't just throw up their hands and say, oh, there's nothing we can do about this. Because as someone uh, pointed out to me, uh, the, the shipyards need the government just as much as the government needs the shipyards. And so um, it's not like the government is powerless here, even if they only have one or two companies to turn to, and even if some of these costs might come back in other contracts. There are things that can be done, and by the way, have been done in the last year or two to do something about this problem. For example, believe it or not, the Navy was inspecting ships before they were done building them, okay? They would, they would, they would inspect them before they were technically delivered to the Navy, but before they were done with all these critical fixes. And so they never did an inspection later to make sure that these fixes were performed adequately and that the ship that the sailors were getting was, uh, was, a, was a working asset. And so recently, the, under pressure from the Government Accountability Office, the Navy has changed that, and they've added inspections later in the process. They've also, even though they sometimes have shipyards fix things they shouldn't have broken to begin with, they're, they're, still, they're still fixing those things in many cases, and they still get the revenue for that. They've stopped paying them profit on that extra work. So they've taken steps. There are things that can be done, and more things can be done. I should mention one of the most damning aspects of your story is you had a source, a former uh, employee for one of the contractors who was basically confirming uh, this sort of profligacy. But John, we also had this week uh, President Trump send down his uh, proposed budget to Congress. Uh, was there anything in there about ensuring quality control? Well, not that I noticed. I'm glad you mentioned that because this uh, points to the fact that this issue is going to be even more important going forward. Because they're requesting $24 billion this year. It's the biggest shipbuilding request in uh, 20 years, adjusted for inflation. And they're, they're starting new classes. They've already started designing a new nuclear missile submarine. They're uh, about to launch a new frigate program. And this, this year, they are talking about building unmanned uh, surface ships uh, going forward in the next few years. And so they're starting brand new programs. And so quality is going to be a key issue going forward, and there's a lot of money on the line. John, is there anyone up on Capitol Hill who's pushing for restraint so far as the Defense Department's budget goes? Well, I think, you know, Democrats writ large are uh, more inclined to want to restrain uh, defense spending. And, uh, you know, if, if, they're going to, if there's going to be increases in defense spending, they want to see non-defense budgets go up as well. So, yeah, there's definitely some concern about the level of spending. Um, but, you know, it is extremely high. Uh, you know, everyone talks about the, uh, you know, sequestration, this scary sounding word, but the reality the is... The budget control measure they passed uh, in 2011 that was supposed yes, to thank hold you. back. Thank you for, Claire, for, for mentioning <laughs> that. 
the reality is that the defense budget uh, that, that the president has proposed, and in fact, the last couple of years, um, is one of the highest peacetime budgets adjusted for inflation since World War II. Okay, so during the Iraq and Afghanistan, the height of those conflicts, uh, we were spending more, but it was because we had all these troops deployed over, overseas. But when you just look at like sort of the core part of the de- Defense Department budget, the sort of peacetime, if you will, um, budget, you know, it's pretty much never been higher. So it, that's a fact that gets lost, I think, as people talk about the defense budget. And so it's something that, you know, it's a, it's a huge area of concern. All right, John, we know you and your colleagues are going to be up on the Hill, and we will look for your reports about the oversight that's going on or lack thereof as the appropriations process proceeds. Thank you for joining us, John. My pleasure. And thank you for joining us. And a special thanks to my producer, Tula Vlahu. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find it at rollcall.com. And please rate us on iTunes. For more on this and other stories, visit rollcall.com or find us on Twitter at CQNow or at rollcall. 